All right. <clears throat> Today is, in the church world, Pentecost Sunday. Actually, Wednesday, May 31st, was the actual day of Pentecost, according to the Jewish calendar, 50 days after Passover. And uh, we always celebrate uh, or remember Pentecost on Sunday. It's not that Pentecost happened on a Sunday, but in the church world where we gather together and assemble and worship on Sunday, this is the first Sunday after uh, the Feast of Pentecost. <clears throat> now, today's message is really not about Pentecost. We're in Exodus 16. But in case you haven't noticed, really all the Bible ties together. And I'm not going to try to turn Exodus 16 into a Pentecost message, but I didn't want to not remind you of what this day is. I want to read, uh, actually I, I could read so much more, but I decided to just condense this down to a very short um, portion of a longer message about Pentecost. It's by R.C. Sproul in the title of his message was Undervaluing Pentecost. And he uh, does a really good job of, in a real succinct way, uh, of kind of going through where Pentecost came from in terms of the Scripture. In fact, as we go through Exodus, we're going we're gonna to see shortly in the, next, in the coming weeks uh, of where the Feast of Pentecost came from and why God established it and, and what it commemorates. But I want to read uh, a part of, of, his, of his message. And I want to start here. I'm quoting R.C. Sproul. He says, We also know that in the upper room, Jesus gave his longest discourse on the Holy Spirit when he said that when he would leave, he would not leave us comfortless but that he would send along with the Father the paraclete, that's the Greek word, or what the old King James version of the Bible translated as the comforter. So if you have a King James Bible, when Jesus talks about sending the Holy Spirit, you'll see the word comforter there. And there's a little problem with the use of that term comforter in translating the Greek parakletos because it goes back to earlier English Indeed, it goes back to Elizabethan English when the English language was more closely informed by ancient Latin than it is today. <clears throat> and the translation comforter had its root in the Latin cum forte. So that Jesus was saying when he, when he was saying, I'm going to send you a comforter, what the King James called the comforter was that he was saying, I'm going to send you the one who will come with strength. We say a person may have a particular strength and we call it his forte. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever, anyone ever said that? I was sitting on my porch yesterday and we were talking about my father-in-law who could cook you the best piece of meat you've ever eaten in your life, bar none. No one could cook a better piece of meat than my father-in-law Gerald Gillespie, who is now a vegan and has been a vegan for almost 10 years. The last guy on earth I ever thought would become a vegan was my father-in-law. And my wife says, before I read this article, my wife says, cooking meat was his forte. In other words, that was his strength. He's a great cook. He can cook all kinds of things, but cooking meat was his forte. It was his strength. That's what this word means, cum forte. If you are familiar with music, if you read music, you'll see in sheet music, I do know how to read music. I took band for a number of years, and I learned how to read music. I'd have to refresh my music reading skills, but I do know that when you're reading a piece of sheet music and you see that little F, it means get louder. And when you see a double F in that sign, it means get even more loud. Strengthen, enhance, make it more powerful. Well, this is what the word forte means. 
A person may have a particular strength. We call it a forte and use the term forte. You know the little F or the double F stands for forte. It means you play it with strength and with power. And so what Jesus was saying is, I'm not sending you the Holy Spirit to dry your tears, to console you, to make you feel better after you've been beaten up by your adversaries. Although he does that. What Jesus is saying, though, is the promise of the Spirit was for power and for strength. The Comforter was given so that we would be a people filled with power and strength, not so that we would be consoled, only consoled in our moments of sorrow. Now, God does both, right? But we read in the book of Acts, when Jesus is telling his disciples, go and wait, go and tarry, go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And the specific promise that Jesus gives is this, and you will be endued with power from on high. Church, we are to be a people endued with power. We are to be a people filled with power. And the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, yes, it will carry us through our moments of sorrow, of sadness, of pain, and of suffering. But the Holy Spirit is not there just to dry your tears. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church so that the church would go out in power and give witness to Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's why we remember the day of Pentecost. That's what this day in the church calendar, in the church world is about. But I want to tell you that Pentecost is not just something that happens once a year. I could, I could, I could talk a long time about this, but I don't have time today. But Pentecost is something that should happen continuously in our lives. And God has made provision for that outpouring. He's made provision for that power and strength to be a constant source that fills us, that empowers us, so that we can constantly, consistently, faithfully go out into this world in the strength and the power of God by His Holy Spirit and give witness to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was not given to the church in spite of some popular theologies today. The Holy Spirit was not given to the church so that people of God could come into a building and have great emotional experiences and say, wow, the Spirit really moved today. You should have been in church. No, if the Spirit really is moving, then you should be going outside of this church, and you should be giving witness to Jesus Christ. It's not about what happens in here. It's about what happens in here, translating to what happens out there. And it is the Holy Spirit that helps us get beyond our adversaries, our enemies, our trials, our tribulations, and so that we can be a people that will consistently and faithfully, powerfully give witness to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because that is the hope of this world. That is the only hope that we have, is Jesus Christ and the gospel. And if the church does not give witness to it, then tell me who is going to do it. Because you have been tasked with that very thing, that very commission to go out and to make disciples, to make Christ known, to give witness in power and in strength to his glory. Amen? Pentecost. Now let's transition from there and let's go back to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Let's read the chapter. 
Exodus 16, and they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, This shall be seen when the the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke in the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness. Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So the Lord So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth 
day, bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, and the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot, put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna, Forty years until they came to an inhabited land, they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Well, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would reveal the gospel, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see Christ, who is the gospel, even in this account of the bread that has rained down from heaven. For truly, you are, Lord Jesus, the bread that the Father has rained down from heaven, the bread that we may eat and never hunger again, the bread that we may eat and have life everlasting. Lord, bless us with the hearing of your word. Let it go into our hearts and let it produce in us life and glory for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 1, it is recorded here that they are exactly one month out of Egypt. They left on the Passover on the 15th of the month, and now they are here one month later, the 15th of the second month. And in verse 2 and 3, it tells us that Israel complains. The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses. And here's what they said. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Now remember, they were complaining already before, just days before. They complained because there was no water. You brought us out into this wilderness to kill us by depriving us of water. We're going to thirst to death. Now God gave them water. He turned the bittersweet, brought them to Elam, which is the oasis with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Well, lots of symbolism there that we don't have time to go into. But there are reasons when the Bible gives you numbers, just know there's always a reason why God gives you numbers. He gives you detail for a reason because God doesn't do anything without a reason, without a purpose. And so they come now, and they're in the wilderness. They leave Elam, and they've traveled. It's the 15th day of the second month, and they don't have any food. And they said, oh boy, if the Lord would have just taken our lives in the land of Egypt while we were sitting by the pots of meat, eating bread to the full. But instead, Moses, you brought us out into this wilderness only that we would die of hunger. Now remember who this people are. We're a month on the other side of Passover. We're a month on the other side of God performing the great signs and wonders through the ten plagues. We're now just days past the splitting of the Red Sea, they crossed over, millions of them crossed over on dry land. It's, it's a sight that, that is difficult for us to even imagine. And now they get on the other side, they're complaining because they don't have any water, and God does this miracle of making the sweet water, the bitter water, sweet. Then he brings them this beautiful oasis. Now they've left this oasis and they don't have any food. They've run out of provision from Egypt. They had a month's worth of provision. And now they don't have any food. They got water, but they don't have any food. We're going to die of starvation out here. And they begin to complain. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Now, what's ironic is this complaining generation is going to die, (laughs) but they're not going to die 
in Egypt. They're going to die by the hand of the Lord in the wilderness. A whole generation of people die in the wilderness because of their doubt and their unbelief. Complaining, listen to me church, complaining is a sin. Now, I'm going to confess to you right now that I am guilty of this sin much more than I would like. I confess my sin to you, but here's the reality. Complaining is a sin that we are prone to commit even in the most faith-inspiring situations. We are a people that strives, that should strive to maximize our faith and minimize our complaints. Why? As verse 4 in this chapter shows us, the Lord knows what we need before we utter our first complaint. The Lord will test us in meeting our needs that we will learn to walk in His ways. The test is not for the Lord's benefit, but it's for our own benefit to teach us His ways. This is what God says. I hear their complaints. I'm going to give them bread and I'm going to give them meat, but I'm going to test them in providing for them. And this is exactly what God does in our own lives. He tests us in meeting our needs, that we learn to walk in His ways. And the test is not for God. The test is for us that we would learn and that we would become a people that would actually walk in His ways. The children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron but Moses rightly chastised them for complaining against the Lord. Our complaints are ultimately against God, even if they are directed at people. You do get that, right? I, I can complain about a lot of things, but ultimately, whether I'm complaining about an inanimate object or a person, ultimately my complaint is going to the Lord. My complaint is against the Lord. Prayer, not complaining, is how we are to communicate with God. And there is a difference between prayer and complaining. Prayer is born out of faith. Our complaints are born out of fear. You can almost always trace your complaints back to fear. You say, well, I'm, I, I, I'm impatient. I'm angry. I'm just an angry person. Listen, anger is a symptom. Your problem's not really anger. Your problem goes deeper than anger. Anger is just a symptom. I'm impatient. Impatience is just a symptom. It goes deeper than that. And usually you can trace all these back to fear. Prayer is born out of faith. Our complaints are born out of fear. Prayer is faithful in love. Complaining is doubtful in fear. We complain, we doubt, we fear because we don't know. Why does not knowing bother us? Because we feel the necessity to be in control. That is the sinful human condition. You may be a new creation in Christ, but you still have a mind that can at any given moment go to this place of fear and doubt if you allow it. You can revert back to it very easily. And the necessity we feel to be in control, to have all the information, to have all the answers, and we think sometimes we are in control, but that is just a deceptive illusion because we really and truly, when it comes right down to it, are not in control of anything. We can think we are. And this is why James says, don't say that we're going to go to such and such a town and buy and sell and conduct business because you don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't care how well you have planned your life out. I don't care how well you've got your routine down and all your scenarios are covered and you know exactly what's going to... you. The reality is none of us at this given moment knows exactly what's going to happen the next moment. We might be able to predict with pretty accurate certainty 
because we've got statistically a really good track record to go by and we can almost guarantee. But the reality is we don't really know. There's only one who knows and that is God. We can have all our ducks in a row like a good Taylorite should, but the reality is only God knows what the next moment, the next hour, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year holds. What are we left with? We are left with faith. We are left with trust. We must trust God in the face of uncertainty. We must trust God and admit that as well prepared as we may be, as well rehearsed as our lives may be, when it comes right down to it, I am left with really trusting God. And that is exactly where God wants us to be. We spend a lot of time teaching people how to be prepared, and that's fine, that's good. And I've, I've spent a lot of time in the last two years on preparedness. We had a flood two years ago, last month, and we were not prepared as a city. And it became very apparent that we were an unprepared city for the disaster that hit us. Out of that came all kinds of discussions and classes and trainings about personal preparedness. It's all fine and good. But as personally and as well as you may be prepared if you are not trusting God, you better prepare yourself. I better prepare myself to trust God. What I need to learn more than anything is not how to be better prepared for certain circumstances. What I need to learn more than anything is how to trust God. Because God knows what I don't know. He sees what I can't see. And he can do what I cannot do. And he has proved that since the beginning of creation. That is who God is. He can do what we cannot do. What is impossible with man is possible with God. God's provision is never lacking, even when we think it is. God in his grace will answer even our complaints and show us his glory, but never without his purpose and our preparation in mind. Now, what we need to understand is God did not reward Israel for their complaining. We see this with parents a lot of times. Parents reward their children for their complaining. Don't reward your children for their complaining because God doesn't reward us for our complaining. But sometimes we provide what our children need even though they're complaining, right? just like God does with us. God didn't reward Israel for their complaining. He provided their needs and worked through his provision to test them and teach them and so prepare them to walk by faith. He prepared those who would by faith enter into his promise and he does the same for us. God does not reward unfaithfulness, but in his grace he does provide for us in spite of our own unfaithfulness. You don't have what you have. God has not blessed you, given you what you have because you are faithful. He's blessed you in spite of your unfaithfulness. In his provision for us and in our lack, so not only in God's providing, not only in his provision for us, but even in our lack of provision, God is preparing us to trust in his promise. This is exactly what he was doing with the children of Israel. He was preparing them to trust in his promise. Through provision, but also through a lack of provision. God provides meat and bread. So they come to this place. There's like, God, we're going to die out here in the wilderness because we don't have any food. And what does God do? He says, I'll give them meat and bread. They're like, oh, if we were just back in Egypt sitting by the meat pots, eating all that meat and eating bread till we just can't stuff any more in our mouths, that's where I want to be. God, you should have just left me there and killed me right there with the meat pots and the bread. I'd have been a happy camper to die right there in Egypt. 
Now, if, if, if you're following this story since we began the book of Exodus, you have to be like amazed at how fickle this people are. I mean, they go from complaining for 400 years, crying out to God that, that they need to be delivered from the slavery. God delivers them. He does these great and mighty miracles, brings them out. And now what are they saying? God, I wish you'd have just left me in Egypt with all that meat and bread. God has a purpose in his provision for us. God provides all according to his plan and according to his purpose in his way and in his time to prepare us for his promise. Israel was to gather according to the number of their family. So he rains down this manna. He brings quail. And he tells him, when you go and get this manna, when you gather it, you are to gather it according to the number that's in your family. Those that gathered much, it said nothing was left. And those that gathered little had no lack. So we see this principle that God provides according to our need, though not always according to our desire. Have you guys ever noticed that? God provides according to your need, but he does not necessarily always provide according to our desire. If God had given the children of Israel what they actually said they desired, he would have sent them back to Egypt. But he wasn't going to do that. Parents of children... Have your children ever come to you and, and tried to convince you how much they need something? I mean, with tears streaming and emotion brimming over, they are trying to convince you that this is what I need right now. This is what I want, and it is what I need. But you, as a good parent... Look at them with all your compassion and say one of the most important words of any language, no. We do the same thing to God. But we, we think we've grown up and we've matured. We look at our children and say, well, they're just children Lord, I know they don't need that candy. Lord, I don't need no they I know they don't need that 11th donut. They think they do, but I know they don't. So I'm going to say no because that's what good parents do. But then we we come to God. We say, "God, this is what I this is what I need. This is what I want, God." And we argue with God and we justify our, our perceived need and what we want. And God gives us what we all don't want to hear. He gives us the great, big, divine no. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying I've ever heard the audible no of God, but we all know the no of God, right? We know the no of God because we end up not getting what we want. And knowing who God is and knowing what God is capable of, when we come to God and we say, God, this is what I must have, and we don't get it, you can accurately decipher at that moment, at least for that moment, God has given you the divine no. This is what he did with the children of Israel. He gave them what they needed. He didn't withhold what they needed, but he did not give them what they wanted. Because what they said they wanted was really ridiculous. God could see how ridiculous it was, but in the moment, those people obviously couldn't, they couldn't discern how ridiculous what their complaints and their requests to God must have sounded like. Let's go back, parents, to our children. Sometimes we, 
We've all experienced this. If we haven't experienced it firsthand with our own children, we've seen it. And sometimes we have to hold back our laughter because our little ones are so passionate and it's somewhat funny to us because we, we realize how ridiculous what it is that they're really wanting and we don't want them to minimize or trivialize what's really, you know, they're feeling. But as a parent who's looking at this, we're like, okay, this is kind of ridiculous. And we kind of smirk and bite our tongue. And it's like, okay, I'm going to try to teach my child something here, you know, to learn a valuable lesson. Now, I don't know if God does that with us, but I do know that we sometimes must, just like the children of Israel in this story, we must bring that type of thing to God. And God says, I know you believe with all your heart this is what you need, but I'm going to have to say no because I know, I know better than you know what you need. God has a purpose in all he provides, and he has a purpose in all that he will not provide. We often do not know the consequence of all we may desire. God in his grace may not provide all we desire, but in his love, he is faithful to provide all that we need. So God provides, and he has a purpose in his provision, but God also has a method in his provision. And that method will require faith on our part. We should take note of not only what God provides, but how he provides it and how we are to receive it and how we are to receive and appropriate that which God provides. Now, the Bible is clear that we are to receive all. How? Through faith. Faith is the currency of the kingdom. It is by faith we are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians, uh, um, Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11:1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So whatever God provides, whatever we receive from God, we have to receive it in faith and we see this in this account of the bread from heaven, that sinful man is tempted to operate out of fear instead of faith. Man, this just doesn't look like it's going to feed all the, of our family. And, and what, if, what if Bob, man, you know he's a pig. What if Bob eats more than he should like he always does? He's going to eat it all up and we're not going to have enough left. Look, get some extra there. Or you know, tomorrow is the Sabbath. And we've only got today. We gather our, we gather extra. Sabbath comes. Hey, go out there and see if there's any more. Let's get some more today. No, there, there is no more. Don't eat it all. Let's save it and, and, and save some for tomorrow. Only problem is now it has worms and it stinks. This is the sinful condition of man. We are tempted to operate out of fear instead of faith. God's instruction was, let no one leave any of it till morning, except for the Sabbath. So, Monday, well, for them, Sunday through Friday, you only get what you need for that day. Come Friday... You're going to gather double. You're going to eat what you need for Friday. But miraculously, God's not going to let it rot and stink on Saturday. Any other day, whatever's left over is going to rot and stink. It's going to get worms. But miraculously, when it comes to the Sabbath, God preserves the manna so that they don't have to go out and collect it on the Sabbath, but they have it already. See, God can keep what you and I can't keep. 
What you and I try to keep and preserve for ourselves is going to rot and stink and get worms. Because God says, stop trusting in yourself and trust in me. And if you keep trying to trust in yourself, you're just going to cause things to get rotten in your life. And it's going to get pretty stinky. Verse 23, then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath. Rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today. Boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until the morning. And when you get up in the morning to eat your manna cereal, it's not going to have worms. It's not going to be rotten. and It's not going to be stink. It's, it's going to be fresh because God has preserved it. There was a method to the madness that would test the people of God to see if they would obey his command and follow his ways. Faith is less about what we say and more about what we do. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is why we say Romans 10, 9, and 10 is not a formula for salvation because we're not saved by a formula. Keep the formula and you will be saved. No. Salvation has nothing to do with the formula. Salvation is by grace through faith. So why did Paul write, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Next verse, for with the mouth, salvation is, uh, confession is made uh, to, to uh, faith and from our salvation and from the heart one believes and trusts To salvation. Confess what's coming out of your mouth. What's in your heart is what's coming out of your mouth. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's coming out of your life, what will come out of your life is either going to be faith or not. Faith is less about what we say and more about what we do. It is from the heart that we are called to obey. Our talk is to align with our walk. That is the true test of faith. This is why James writes in James 2.20, faith without works is dead. Now he's not saying we're saved by our works. He's saying if you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, your life will produce fruit. It will demonstrate the reality of that faith in your heart. God provides in his grace and we are to receive in faith and faithfully appropriate his provision for our life and for his glory. If we do not obey and walk by faith in his provision, God in his grace may cause his provision to turn rotten and begin to stink. And if God allows his provision in your life to become rotten and stinky, it is because he is trying to help you, not hurt you. <laughs> he is trying to help you learn the way you are to walk because his way is always better than our way. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55. Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So God established a memorial. He tells Moses and Aaron, he said, take an omer of manna and put it before the testimony and keep it there. God established a memorial to, to remind the generations of his provision in his salvation and prepare them to enter into his promise. This is why we gather together. This is why we assemble together week in and week out. This is why we bring the children and we have children here because we are giving testimony to the generations. We are giving witness to the generations. Our culture has lost this. Our culture has turned into a culture of convenience. And so children can become an inconvenience. There was a great movement, still a movement in a lot of the church, where we want to give parents a worry-free, stress-free worship experience. It's that exact language. The problem with that is the Bible never 
teaches that we are to provide worry-free, stress-free worship experiences by getting rid of our children. This isn't a night out at the movies. This is the worship of the true and living God. This is worshiping the Lord of glory. And what God is more concerned about is are we giving witness and testimony to the generations? God preserved a jar of manna. The Bible goes on, this this chapter ends with saying that they ate manna in the wilderness for 40 years. And as long as that ark existed, that manna was inside of that ark. It didn't stink, it wasn't rotten, and it didn't have worms. The children of Israel couldn't keep it overnight without it rotting, stinking, and getting worms. But somehow God was able to keep a jar of it in perpetuity without it ever running up on its expiration date because it didn't have an expiration date because God preserved it. And why did he preserve it? He tells us right here as a testimony, as a witness to the generations. Church, what we do week in and week out is we give witness to the generations. We prepare the generations that are coming behind us so that they see and hear and know this is what the people of God do. Why is coming to church important? Because if we don't learn and if we don't teach the generations, listen, Christianity is not going to go away. Jesus' plan to build his church is not going to fail because we fail. But your failure and my failure will have dire consequences on you and me and those around us. And we need to learn that lesson as a church, not just as Christ's fellowship church, but we need to learn it as part of the body of Christ. God says, put it in an omer, put it in an omer, put it before the testimony and keep it as a witness to the generations. And since God's creation, he has been preparing a people for his promise. He is preparing you right now. And it is by faith that we enter into his promise. It is by faith that we walk in his promise. We walk in his promise by faith or we walk in our own imaginations by sight. But God uses all to test us, to teach us. And God is using your walk to prepare you and to prepare the generations to enter in and abide in his promise. Don't think that that generation that went into the promised land did not learn from that generation that died in the wilderness. God prepared them in both ways. God used the one generation that died in the wilderness, and as that generation coming up walked through the wilderness and saw the dead carcass of their fellow Israelites, in the, in, the, in the desert, they learned. It prepared them to enter in by faith. What are we learning, church? What are we learning as we look at the landscape of our culture? What are we learning as we navigate the trials and tribulations of our own lives? What are we learning? Are we embracing God's test? Are we embracing the preparation of God? Are we looking ahead? Are we purposeful and intentional about preparing the generations in faith to worship the King of glory? Or are we satisfied with just something much, much less than that? If we read the Bible seriously, if we take it seriously, we see that this isn't a game. God wasn't playing a game with the children of Israel. It was serious. It was life and death. Jesus died on the cross that we might have life. It was a real death. It was serious. Where are we? I have to ask myself, where am I? 
you have to ask yourself, where am I in this journey? Am I discerning correctly? Am I walking by faith? Or am I fearful? Because I'm more caught up with everything I can see and everything I can feel than the reality of what God has declared to us in His Word. And if I see and if I read and I, I, I know His faithfulness from generation to generation to generation to generation, why will I not trust that He will be faithful to my generation? And why will I not trust that He will be faithful to the generation of these children, these young kids that are in this building today? But it's apparent, it's apparent that we who have gone before some and now we're looking at those coming after us, it's, it's imperative for us to be serious about our walk and how we are preparing the generations to worship God. It's one of the most important things that we can do as a church. There is no more important thing we can do as a church. So walk by faith, church. Don't walk by sight. Trust Him. I want to invite you to come to the table, this table that the Lord has prepared for us. God rained down bread and meat. We come to this table because this is the table that represents the bread, the very flesh of the Son of God and the blood that He poured out for us that we could be saved. That we would not be that generation that dies in the wilderness and does not enter into His promise. So in faith, church, I invite you to come to Jesus. Trust Him and enter into His promise. Bread from heaven and meat from heaven, these represent Christ who is the true bread that came down. Christ who is the true manifestation of what the manna in the wilderness could only point to. He is the Word made flesh to feed us, to sustain us, to strengthen us, and to give us life. Walk by faith. Do not be presumptuous, but be faithful and trust that what God has provided, when He has provided it, and how He provides it, is what you need, even if it may not be what you desire at this time. God is preparing you. Trust Him and embrace His work by His Spirit. Find His joy in everything even in the test, and let it be your strength.